0: We've been singing this morning already about Christ, right? Uh, Christ alone. Christ is the cornerstone. And this passage is really all about that idea, where where Jesus sits as the center of all things. And in light of that, what it means then for those of us who believe in him and those of us who don't, uh, how do we who believe in him live in light of this fact that Jesus is not just the center of our lives, but really the center of everything. He is Lord. And that's the message that Peter wants to get across to his readers and to us as we walk through the text here this morning. Let me uh, give you a really helpful tip, by the way, before we dive in here, for how you read the Bible and how you apply the Bible in your life successfully as a Christian. And it's this... This is something that someone taught me many years ago, and it's, it's always understand the imperatives of Scripture in light of the indicatives, uh, which means this, and I'll put this up on the screen. Uh, com- imperatives are commands, right? Uh, so when you come across a command in the Bible, you should do this. Don't just read it in isolation, but understand it in light of what God says about who he is, what he's done for us and who we are in him because God never gives us a command without first telling us who he is, what he's done for us and who we are in him. So we understand these commands in light of these statements of fact about Christ and our identity in him through the gospel. In other words, our obedience to God should always be rooted in the gospel. If you think about that, You'll notice that it's true, and I hope that you do notice that. Read through your Bible. You can go through the Old Testament. You can go through the New Testament. When God makes a command to his people and he calls them to obedience, it's always prefaced by, I am the Lord your God who has saved you. I am the Lord, your God, who has shown you mercy, who has called you to myself. I, in other words, have have delivered you away from sin's power and grasp, and therefore you can now live in light of that salvation. Here's the command to obey. That's the way God operates. And the major theme of 1 Peter flows from that same structure. In light of the gospel of Jesus Christ and who you are in him, which we've been reading through in chapter 1, he then gives us these commands: how to live, and how to specifically endure in and relate to a non-believing society. Because remember, this is being written to churches who are beginning to experience persecution, and it's going to get worse. These are these are new churches in Gentile regions who are trying to figure out what does it look like to live as Christians in this pluralistic, uh, you know, Greek culture Roman political environment where Christianity is not popular (laughs) and its claims will be not popular and dismissed they're trying to figure that out and so he's giving them these commands in light of who they are in Christ and what Christ has done and our text today verses 4 through 12 of chapter 2 essential to the theme of this letter. So let's look at them together. 1 Peter 2, verse 4. As you come to him, coming to Christ, as you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, And into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. And keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. You see there, there are commands, but they're rooted in these incredible statements of who Jesus is and who we are in him, right? And the main idea of this text that is this. Everything, everything hinges on the person and work of Jesus Christ. Everything. I'm going to give you the indicatives and then we're going to talk about the imperatives. So we're going to walk through what's been stated as statements of fact about who Jesus is, who believers are, and who non believers are. That's our first category this morning. And then we'll follow it up with the commands then on how we live as believers. So in the indicatives, what is true about Jesus, the church, and the non believing world? This is what he says in verses 4 to 10. But look back at verse 4 again. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. This is a description of who Christ is. What's the indicative of of Jesus? What does it say about him? He is this living stone. Rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. Christ is the living stone. He is the cornerstone. What is a cornerstone for? Not many of us are probably uh, in construction or masons, but a cornerstone is, is for a building, right? If you're going to build a building, you start by laying this first stone, this cornerstone, and then you build out from there. The Old Testament references that Peter makes here come from Isaiah 28. They come from Psalm 118, which Christine read earlier. And they come from Isaiah chapter 8. And all of those texts talk about this cornerstone idea and the temple of God. And they equate the temple of God with Jesus Christ. He is this living cornerstone. The temple, of course, was what? It's where God dwelled on earth with his people, it's the place where he pitched his tent among us, or among Israel, we should say, to be more accurate. And so Jesus comes along and Jesus is the word made flesh and he becomes the fulfillment of this temple promise, God with his people. Jesus is called Emmanuel, right? God with us. And by depositing his spirit in those who are believers, his disciples, Christ and the church together form what the New Testament now calls this temple of God. The old temple is gone, the new temple is Christ and his people. He is the cornerstone, and we are the the building blocks that are building up this spiritual house. We see that here in verse 5. But he's revealed to be the cornerstone, right? Everything hinges on him. He had to be as the cornerstone, just what a cornerstone has to be, and that's this. First of all, it has to be chosen. It has to be choice. You You have to go out and choose the perfect stone to begin your building project. Perfect, Jesus is perfect in the sense that he is supremely loved and supremely exalted by the Father who has given him the name that is above every other name. And he has demonstrated that perfection through his perfect obedience to death on a cross. And a cornerstone has to be perfectly level, and it has to be just at the right angle for all of the other stones to build off of, to be laid from it properly. It has to be true, and therefore the building can be true and sound. And so Jesus is revealed to be that perfect, true stone, that living stone, because he's the living, resurrected Lord. So what Peter has in mind here is he has the, the completed work of Christ through the cross and the resurrection. And it's important that this choice stone of God will have one of two reactions then from human beings, from men and women in the world. He'll either be received. He says here, as you who believe, as you come to him, he'll either be received or he'll be rejected. Because we're told here that others will reject him. What he's telling us about Jesus Christ is of utmost importance here. Everything hinges on him, everything. He is the cornerstone, not just of the church, supremely of the church, but of everything. And everyone then has to respond to him as that cornerstone. We'll either receive him or we'll reject him. He's giving us here a biblical worldview, a way to understand the whole world, It all hinges on Jesus. What will you do with him? So that's what we're told about who Christ is. And then we're told something about who are the believers in Christ, who are the church, and who are we in Christ, church? Well, first of all, we're told here that we are now the people of God. We have received mercy, we're told in verse 10. He says, once you were not a people, but now you are my people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. He's, 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 he's looking back to Hosea, chapter 1 here, where God has, has, has named uh, Hosea's children, and he names them Lo-Ami, not my people, and Lo-Ruhamah, not mercy, not, not receiving mercy, but he's saying, now you're renamed. You are the people of God. We're chosen by him. We're a chosen race. We're a people for God's own possession, verse 9. And we're living stones. We're identified with Jesus as being alive, like he is alive. And again, being built into a spiritual house, meaning a new new culture is being formed here in this new house, this new temple of God, a counterculture, verse 5. And we're a holy priesthood. We're called out for the purpose of proclaiming his excellencies to the world, verse 9. And we're not put to shame, verse 6, but we are honored as Christ is honored, verse 7. So we're told something about who we are as believers in Christ, as he is the perfect image of God. So we as the church are the image of Jesus in the world. We point to him. We're the house that is built upon him. We point to the ultimate reality of God's worldview, the ideal, because we point to the perfect image, Jesus. That's who the church is. And then we're told something about the non-believing world. Who are they? They're those who stumble over Jesus. They're those who are disobedient. They reject him. Why? Because they stumble over his gospel, because they were destined for disobedience. We see that in verse 8. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Why? Because what does the gospel demand of us? If Jesus is the cornerstone, if he's the center upon which everything else hinges, we have to then deny ourselves and say, I'm not that stone, right? I'm not the one who my whole life revolves around and who everything hinges upon. I have to deny myself, take up my cross, and follow him. He's the cornerstone. That's the most difficult thing for a human being to do. It's impossible for a human being to do apart from the grace of God. The dominant worldview, that which rejects Christ, is destined for failure and judgment precisely because it sees who he is and it can't receive him. Nonbelievers stumble over him and miss out on God's redemption through him because they can't, they can't give him that place of centrality. So Peter's saying, look, this is this is every single person in the world. You are either a believer in him or you're one who's rejected him, who stumbles over him, who's disobedient to him. He's shown to be the center of everything on which the destiny of all mankind hinges. He's either honored as the cornerstone or he's the stone of stumbling. So those are the indicatives of the passage. And in light of that, then, this reality, he gives us these imperative commands. How do we live as the church within a non believing society. Look again at verse 11. It says, Beloved, those of you who are followers of Christ, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul, and keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify the Father on the day of separation, or, excuse me, of visitation. How do we live as the church in a non-believing society amongst those who rejected Christ? The first thing he tells us is that we live there as exiles. We've talked about this already, right? We as the church of God, we are temporary residents, right? We're resident aliens here. We live here, uh, but not with a long-term outlook, right? We're renters. We're not homeowners here. We're not fully expected to participate in the culture as if this is the only thing that we have because it's not our ultimate hope is in heaven so he says here one of the ways that we live as christians in a non-believing society is as exiles in other words we stay separate we don't live like the world lives here right abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your souls we stay separate But then next, he says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that they see your good deeds. So not only do we stay separate, but we're also told you also enter in. Stay separate, but enter in. This exile language here is reminiscent of what God told his people in the exile in the Old Testament in Jeremiah 29. I'll put this up on the screen for you. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Interesting how this is what the people of God are told to do, right? In one sense, stay separate. Don't become like the culture around you, but enter into that culture at the same time and live in it as lights for me, right? Reflect me in that culture. Point to me. Seek its welfare. In it, you'll find your welfare. Stay separate, but enter in. You say, that sounds like paradox. Well, the key is balance. How do we maintain that balance of stay separate, but enter in? It's a great question and something I think we could spend the rest of our lives trying to sort through. And we, we probably should. But Tim Keller's done some excellent thinking on this question. And he says that the key to this balance is to avoid the us or them mentality that so often takes root in the church. The us or them mentality. Meaning this, when we say us, we, 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 we enter in but don't stay separate. We see the culture and us as one. Cultural accommodation, cultural assimilation. The idea here is to be so relevant and so in step with culture that we, we lose our difference. We lose our uniqueness as the people of God. And so we end up sort of giving in and caving in on many issues in an attempt to avoid persecution. Because we don't want to be seen as different from the world around us. We don't want to put ourselves in an uncomfortable position where we can be persecuted. We fail to stay separate. That's the us mentality. But then there's the them mentality as well the culture is them this is extreme separatism here cultural avoidance we build up walls between us and culture in an attempt to avoid persecution so again it's the same idea we're trying to avoid persecution one way or the other we're either going to assimilate and look just like the world or we're going to put up so many walls that we have no contact with the world either way we're trying to avoid persecution And we fail to go in. We fail to say separate, or we fail to go in. Both, though very different approaches, are kind of seeking the same thing. They're seeking to gain power by avoiding persecution. So we're called to have some balance here. We're called to follow in line with the cornerstone. Remember? He's the cornerstone. Jesus, the one whom we are to line up with, the one in whom is the true set course in which the house should be built. And what did this cornerstone look like? He sought not power, but weakness in order to display the glory of his Father. And in his life, in the way he lived that life, he was both heralded for many good things that benefited his culture, yet also... Rejected ultimately for his stand against their selfishness and sin and he suffered the ultimate persecution the death on a cross so Peter's calling us to look to our cornerstone and to do the same you know the early church was known for being radically countercultural and yet very engaging of their culture at the same time There's lots of examples of this. I mean, the early church is far from perfect. We can read all kinds of imperfections about the early church in our New Testament pastoral epistles. But they were known. There's lots of historical documentation of this for being both radically countercultural, yet also very engaging of their culture in lots of different ways. Here's a few of the things that they were known for. They didn't go to the blood sport games. They were deeply concerned for the poor. They valued women as equal. They mixed the races in their churches unlike any other segment of society. They didn't support military conquests. They were against infanticide. They viewed premarital sex and same-sex practices as sinful. And they claimed that Jesus was the only way to salvation, which was very countercultural against the polytheistic uh, uh, religion of, of the culture. So here we see examples of the church. Again, they were engaging in their culture, but they were very separate at the same time. They, they were viewed as oddball in a lot of their, their perspectives and their views and the way that they lived. Now, here's what I want us to consider this. What happens if we were to overlay these values on modern American cultural categories? Let me throw up a new slide. Right? I didn't change anything here other than categorize some of those same things and what we would probably today consider to be li- what liberals do or what conservatives do, right? And by liberals and conservatives, I, I, I'm not necessarily talking just politically, although I think that would be fairly true, but theologically as well, right? It might be more considered more liberal to uh, to, to be sort of anti-violence and to be deeply concerned for the poor and to, to value uh, you know, more of an of a egalitarian uh, a status or, or, or devo- I hope this isn't just purely uh, liberal, by the way, but to value things like racial equity. Um, it might be considered more conservative to be against things like abortion or, or, or sexual sin or making strong statements that Jesus is the only way to salvation. Now, all these things are, good and true, but we might categorize them as sort of, well, these were more liberal views and more conservative views. And here's what I want us to understand. If we go back to the previous slide and see that the early church didn't have those kinds of categories, but they were just for all of it, what does it tell us about what Christians can and ought to look like in the world? It means that we don't really fit the categories, Right? Don't really fit. There's a tension, and I think what Peter's trying to let us know here is there should be. The church, like Christ, represents the image of God in the world over and against the dominant worldviews, the dominant categories that the world would would put out there and say these things are good, these things are to be valued. These things are not good. These things are not to be valued. And as Christians, we're supposed to come and say, what does the cornerstone say about these things? Regardless of what other categories may exist out there, we need to line up with him. Not fit in any worldly box, but follow in the way and the path of Christ on whom everything hinges. Everything hinges. We have to recognize that our call isn't to dominate the world in power like every other category is trying to do, but to redeem the world in love the way Jesus demonstrated it for us. And if we're gonna do that, we have to line up with the cornerstone and live lives that point to his superior beauty and his sovereign lordship. You think about where we live I'm going to make generalizations here, but I think they're pretty accurate. Chicagoans tend to, tend to be very okay with what Jesus and what God's word even say about compassion, about forgiveness, about justice. But they tend to hate what the word of God says about things like gender or sexuality or family, right? Right? And you can go to other places that are the opposite of that. They'll tend to be all for what God's word says about things like gender, sexuality, and family, but not so much for what God's word says about compassion or forgiveness or justice. But as Christians, we're called to represent both and all of it. We're called to represent the things that Jesus demonstrated And some of that will cause the world at times to say we approve and even to glorify God. And some of that will cause them at times to want to persecute us just like they did with Christ. But I think it's important for us to be very biblically minded here. Say if Jesus is the cornerstone and I'm really lining up with him, then then how is that going to direct the way that I live my life? And if I'm only getting persecuted, or if I'm only getting praise, I'm probably not doing it. I'm probably not living the gospel life. So how do we find the strength to endure in this tension? Again, we go to the cornerstone. We come to him. That's what it says in verse 4. Come to him. And then firstly, we have to be confronted with the question of what is my cornerstone? What is my foundation? What is my identity? What have I been anchoring myself in? What have I been lining myself up with? How have I been living my life? Is Jesus truly the center of my life, or am I more putting myself in a category like I'm? Well, I'm lined up with these conservative values, or I'm lined up with these more liberal values, or I'm lined up with this, whatever, worldly category. What is my foundation? What's my identity? Is it something of the world, or is it Christ? And what happens when that foundation, whatever it is, whatever cornerstone you've chosen, what happens when it? shakes. What Peter's telling us here is that when the foundation is anything other than Christ, you'll be put to shame because it'll shake. But when our foundation is Christ, we will not be put to shame. We'll receive honor as Christ is honored. So first of all, what is my cornerstone? Then, And then when I recognize that and hopefully I'm pointed to Jesus as the superior cornerstone, I find him to be more precious. Remember the parable that Jesus tells about the buried treasure in the field? Right? You know that there's that buried treasure. You're going to go buy that field. You're going to do whatever it takes to make sure that that precious treasure belongs to you we see jesus as the far more precious cornerstone we're going to do whatever it takes to line ourselves up with him he was rejected and despised yes but what makes him precious to us because he was rejected and despised for me and he was rejected and despised for you because you were precious to him that's what makes him precious So we line up with him, thirdly. He is the straight line. He's the cornerstone that I need to line up with. And if I'm lined up with him, if he's accepted, not by the world, but by the one who matters most, the Father in heaven, then I'm accepted. And I'm so affirmed in Christ that it doesn't matter if I'm misunderstood or persecuted by the world. It doesn't matter what the world thinks. Who cares if I have the the acclaim of the subjects if I have the acclaim of the king? Remember, you are honored with Christ when we line up with him so we can suffer well. Peter says, look, the... Indicatives drive the imperatives. And he doesn't say it, but that's what he's laying out for us here, right? Everything hinges on Jesus. This is who he is God's chosen one, the perfect one, the king of kings, the lord of lords, the choice, precious stone. This is who he is. And if he's called you to himself, this is who you are in him. You are lined up, you're being built up as this spiritual house. So if that's who you are church will you fulfill your call will we fulfill our corporate call church to proclaim his excellency his excellencies in this world how by staying separate but going in deeply for the benefit of society and telling them that there's a precious cornerstone that they can build their lives on too. This is the beginning of a new year. And I uh, I pray, I really do, I pray this week in particular that the Lord will encourage us of just a, a, a beautiful picture of, of Christ and encourage us then to build our lives upon that foundation. I mean, God has chosen us we can't undo his grace in our lives we were reminded of that in Romans earlier as Andy read it for us there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus that's a that is a awesome gospel truth and yet it comes with a call of obedience and that call of obedience then is for us to live in light of that truth and we do that by lining up with the cornerstone so how will we do that well I want to encourage us get in the word Get on your knees. Allow the Holy Spirit who dwells in us to direct our lives and to line us up according to that cornerstone so that we can proclaim his excellencies. We're the the image that points to the image. And I pray that God will do something remarkable in and through us this year. So Lord, I pray that now. Encourage us, Lord, with who Christ is. Thank you for this morning and the reminders that Christ alone is the cornerstone, that Christ alone is the one in whom our salvation is found. He is our light. He is our strength. He's our song. He's our solid rock. And Lord, thank you for the grace that you've shown to us to give us eyes to see and to receive him for who he is. Thank you for the gift of faith and repentance that would allow us to come and to lay our lives down and say, I can't do this. I need Christ. I need my sins forgiven. I need a new heart. Lord, would you give us in this new year a renewed uh, taste of your goodness? Would you give us in this new year a renewed commitment to walking in light of who he is and what he's done for us, Lord. May, may we be a spiritual house that is strong because we're not substituting the cornerstone with anything less, Lord. Let, let Jesus be our rock. Let him be our all in all. Thank you for who he is. Thank you for what he's done. And thank you for our hope in him. I pray that in his name. Amen.